In the midst of a challenging and divisive election season, how should leaders lead their people well? Dr. Russell Moore is our guest this week discussing how he's responding to questions he's receiving about the election. It's all in episode 51 of the Church Leaders Podcast. Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping you lead better every day. And now here's your host, podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, Andrew Hess. Thanks for tuning in to episode 51 of the Church Leaders Podcast. I'm Andrew Hess, your host, and this week, our guest is Dr. Russell Moore. Russell Moore is the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. He's a frequent cultural commentator, an ethicist, and theologian by background, and an ordained Southern Baptist minister. Moore is the author of several great books, including Onward, Engaging the Culture Without Losing the Gospel. You want to hear how Dr. Moore responded to the question, should Christians vote for the lesser of two evils when it comes to picking a political leader? And now, here's my conversation with Dr. Russell Moore. Well, Dr. Moore, thanks so much for being with us on the Church Leaders Podcast. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. And thank you so much for your partnership. You, your writing, you've shared a lot of your writing with the Church Leaders audience, and it's always so well received. So thank you for that. Well, it's great to partner with you in the advance of the church and the gospel. Dr. Moore, a lot of people today are, are seem to be frustrated with, particularly with the election season that we're in. And so we wanted to talk to you about how leaders particularly can lead their people well during this time. Um, so as you've been thinking about the election, what are some of the priorities that you've been um, seeing as you've been leading? Well, I mean, I think one of those uh, things is uh, calling people to avoid substituting politics for religion, which I think is a temptation across the political spectrum in American life right now. So I think many people sort of um, find in politics not just working together for the common good, but they find a sense of transcendence and a sense of belonging in their political ideology or their political party, which is why it's increasingly rare to find people who disagree uh, on uh, some points or on many points with whatever their political party is. Instead, it's this wholehearted uh, devotion to whatever political ideology one is in. And so calling people away from, uh, away from that to really see some things as more important than politics, so putting politics in right priority. But then also at the same time, I think there's a, a tendency to overreact within Christianity to the last bad thing. And so because uh, the last generation was full of um, a great deal of um, political utopianism or, or one step from it, um, there are many people who are burned over by that and who want to react to it by a kind of disengagement from social and political questions uh, altogether. And so I'm concerned that what happens when the church moves in that direction is that the church becomes even more political than what it was before because the church baptizes the status quo by not calling to account uh, the, the way that we act as, as citizens and as part of social structures and, and everything else. And so putting politics in, in proper place and priority while also uh, speaking to the accountability that we have to God to be good citizens is a tension that I feel called to speak to consistently. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that, that I saw that you wrote that was really good is you were wrestling with um, and helping people think through, it was an article in Christianity Today, 
um, where you you tackle the question of what do we do in an election where it seems like there's no right choice, like there's no good choice, there's no moral choice, and yeah. and how do we respond? Can you tell us a little bit about kind of how you responded to that in that article? Well, I think that sometimes um, what we're accustomed to. Uh, seeing in any given election the good guys and the bad guys. And so let's just identify who the good guys are. And, uh, and there's a sense in which every election then becomes uh, not just how are we deciding together who's going to lead us in this particular office, whatever it is, but um, sort of uh, the way that someone feels about his NFL team or, or her March Madness bracket or something. It was a sense of my when when my uh, candidate wins, I win. You know that sense of identification. But there are times when what you end up with are two choices, both of whom are morally disqualified, and, and sometimes for reasons that are very different uh, from one another. And so what I tried to argue in that uh, piece in Christianity Today is to say that sometimes um, what we have to do as Christians is to recognize that we can vote for neither candidate. I've had that uh, experience a time or two when uh, I gave the example in the article of an election in which I had uh, one candidate who was uh, committed to an abortion ideology that I believe is deeply uh, wrong. I couldn't vote for that candidate. The other candidate was someone who had uh, used a racial uh, dog whistling uh, in his campaign, which I also believe is evil and uh, morally unjust. And I could not become culpable in endorsing either of those candidates. And so I had to write in a candidate, which was my write-in candidate was not going to win, although there have been times in American history, including recent American history, where a write-in candidate has won. That typically doesn't happen. But it's an act of conscientious objection where the Christian is saying, I cannot delegate the authority that I have in our system to either of these two disqualified candidates. And I think that's very helpful because I feel like a lot of people feel that, that weight of, I feel like I should vote, um, but I can't vote for either of the, the candidates that could win. And so do you feel like that that's something that we shouldn't hold against ourselves if we would vote for a third candidate or a candidate that we really don't feel like has a shot to win, but that it's okay and that it might be better stewardship of our call before the Lord. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think there are, there are times when that is definitely the case. You know, sometimes people will say, well, shouldn't we vote for the lesser of two uh, evils? And my response to that is to say any election that doesn't have Jesus of Nazareth on the ballot is a lesser of two evils. Uh, all of us are, 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 are sinful people, and every candidate is going to be a flawed candidate. That is a very different thing from saying, am I supporting someone who is disqualified morally from serving in, uh, in office? So um, the, the equivalent would be uh, if, if someone is, we're in an office as citizen, and what we're doing is voting, in voting is we're, we're delegating uh, the use of the sword to someone on our behalf. Okay, another calling that, that someone may have is in uh, the military. So if someone as a Christian is in the military and is commanded to do that which is immoral and evil, uh, so for instance, uh, killing innocent noncombatants, uh, and, and you're given a choice of doing that 
in Syria or doing that in Iraq, then the way that one comes to that decision is not to say, okay, well, there are fewer uh, non-combatant civilians in Iraq than in Syria, so I'll take that option. You would have to say, the Scripture forbids me, Romans 12, from doing evil that good may result. And so I have to conscientiously object from either of these two options. Can't do either one. Sometimes in voting, there are going to be uh, situations and issues that are that clear. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes you're going to end up with a candidate that uh, tells you certain things and then turns out to abandon those commitments and those principles. Sometimes you're going to have a candidate that you believe to be a person of, of relatively good character who, who turns out not to be. Well, that's very different from knowing from the very beginning that you have a candidate who is of disqualified character or who tells you that he or she is going to act in ways that are unjust and even sinful before God. Mm-hmm. Another issue that I feel like a lot of leaders are grappling with right now and people are talking about is um, how do Christian leaders respond when we feel our religious liberties being taken away? And so as, as leaders come to you, and, and we all feel this, we all feel like, you know, it seems like in the news cycle there's all these different things, little little steps towards us losing our religious liberties. How can we, uh, how should we respond in that case in a winsome way, but then also, you know, how should we think about those things? Well, I think we, we first of all, have to know the difference between uh, religious ri- liberty and freedom from ridicule. And so sometimes what energizes Christians is we don't want to be offended. But we don't have any right to expect not to be offended or, or, or not to be ridiculed. And so uh, the kind of uh, fake controversies that we end up uh, in uh, so consistently about whether or not the clerk at the uh, discount store calls us, uh, says Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays. I mean, the, the, those are fake controversies and they actually detract from uh, genuine problems that we have in terms of uh, religious liberty. The other thing we have to keep in mind is that if you think about, uh, for instance, the way the Apostle Paul appeals all the way up to Caesar uh, for his freedom, why does he do that? It's not because he's prizing his own rights or his own comfort. He obviously doesn't. But he does it because he is putting into place the structure that's going to be necessary for other people and for the advance of the gospel. And so if we—it's really easy for people to say, well, let's just shrug our shoulders and give up our religious liberty. When you're doing that, you're not just choosing in our system of government to be persecuted. You're choosing to become persecutors because you're setting into place uh, violations of other people's future religious liberty in terms of the precedents that are, that are there. And so we have to be people who are advocating for religious liberty and not just for ourselves, but for everyone. And so if all Christians are doing is watching out whenever the religious liberty of Christians is being restricted, then that's not religious liberty. That's just majoritarian special pleading. As Christians, we need to be the people who are standing up for the freedom of people we deeply disagree with to be wrong, in our view, uh, precisely because we don't believe it's the place of the state 
to come in and to restrict people's uh, religious expression or to force them to pretend to be uh, in some religious category that they're not in. And so as Christians, the gospel really thrives when you have honesty, where people are honest about who they are and what they believe and what they don't believe and are able to be confronted with the gospel. So when we stand up and say, no, you're not going to zone that mosque out of existence in our community just because it's a mosque. We're not saying Christianity and Islam are equivalent in terms of truth claims. No, we're saying we don't want the state to make that decision. We believe the gospel's big enough to stand on its own two feet. And uh, the way that we address our Muslim neighbors is not by forcing them through penalty of law to pretend to be Christians or vice versa, but by uh, the open proclamation of the truth. Mm-hmm. I love that. And I think another thing that, that I, as I look out, I see a lot of people wanting to do something. When they, when they feel these things happening, uh, they, you know, they want to engage on social media or you know, write a blog post or these things. Um, can you talk about the priority that prayer should be? Um, it seems like we've we're, we've kind of lost that, like that prayer is part of the way that we we do everything that we do. Um, so, do you see that? Yeah, I do, and and not only because we have to be seeking power from God, including in those areas where we don't even know we're in a struggle and a skirmish, but also because as we're praying through situations and as we're doing as Jesus commanded us and praying for our enemies, that changes the way that we engage with them. And so if I pray specifically, not just for, and Lord, I pray for my enemies in an abstract sort of way, but if I sit down and pray by name for people that disagree with me and maybe are in my view, mistreating me, it sort of hems me in, I find, with the way that I relate to them. I I find myself uh, softening toward those people and treating them as people rather than just as issues to be debated on Facebook or or what have you. And so prayer changes us and reshapes us that way because, I mean, what what does the Spirit do? Uh, The Spirit uh, intercedes for us and prompts us how to pray when we don't know how to pray. And so it's not just that we're praying for our enemies, but if we do that in submission to Christ, he's going to lead us into how to pray, which can then give us a sense of ways that we ought to respond to those people when we're face-to-face with them Mm -hmm. or, 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 you know, across the screen from them. Mm -hmm. Are there some specific things that you've been praying during this election season or even verses that you've been thinking about in your in your prayers? Well, um, uh, one of the things that is consistently coming back to me is is the, the Scripture in which Jesus says, Fear not, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And so there, there has to be, especially when— what we see in this election cycle, the stakes are really, really high. And we're seeing some things that we really haven't seen in American life in a long time. There's a resurgent strand of um, white supremacy, of nativism, uh, that we really haven't seen in this overt fashion since the George Wallace campaign at the national level, um, and in many ways even more explicit than that. 
and a kind of nativism we haven't really seen since um, the Know Nothing Party in the 19th uh, century, and then a strain of authoritarianism that I don't know that we've ever seen at the national level, uh, combined with the already existing assaults on human dignity and religious liberty and, and all of those things that we've, we've sort of been accustomed to seeing, we have to be reminded that we're not put into a place of fear. We're also not to be put into a place of apathy. And so regardless of what happens in this election cycle, and frankly, whatever happens to the United States of America, the kingdom of God is not dependent on that. I think it's a good reminder. I feel like a lot of the leaders that are listening to this, um, that's probably something they're feeling in the, as they're ministering to their own people, people coming with fears, anxieties, worries about the future. And I think it's, sometimes it's helpful to think about, you know, how is Christ responding to these things? You know, that, that he, like, sometimes I think we, it, we act like we, we imagine that Christ would be pacing around, you know, the throne of grace and just like, oh, man, what are we going to do? And yeah. that really, that, that's not the case at all. Yeah, Psalm 2. Uh, it ought, ought to be something that's that's on our mind. The Lord laughs uh, encircled in the heavens at those who are as grasshoppers uh, beneath him, and that has to be consistently on our minds. Mm-hmm. Another issue that you've tackled uh, it, it recently is the word evangelical. Um, you wrote a Washington Peace post and said, you know, basically the title, Why This Election Makes Me Hate the Word Evangelical, Talk about how we should be describing ourselves. You know, I, I read that post and, and I stopped using the word evangelical in, in response. What were the things that you think we should emphasize as we identify ourselves? Well, what, what, what I was not arguing in that piece is that, well, we ought to stop using the word evangelical. I mean, I, I, and I've, I've noticed since I've written that that um, I've had people that you know I've run into in Washington and everywhere else who will uh, say something about he's an evangelical. I'm sorry, he's a gospel Christian, and I'm and they'll. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend you by using that word. I'm like, oh, I'm not offended by that word. I, I, I think it's a great word, and I, I point out that it's rooted in the word evangel and gospel, and uh, it, it's got uh, such a great history about it. We need to reclaim it. What I mean is that I find myself hating the word evangelical because of the way that it's being used in our uh, contemporary media context. And now I find myself having to ask whether people understand what I'm talking about when I use it. So the same way the word fundamentalist, um, initially the word fund- all the word fundamentalist meant was people who believe in the fundamentals of the Christian faith. So people who believe in the Bible's truthfulness and in uh, the miracles and in the virgin birth and in the resurrection bodily of Jesus and his visible second coming. And uh, and so it was a big tent about basic mere Christianity. As time went on, fundamentalism came to mean people who prized these secondary doctrines and made these artificial boundaries, and then even people who had a particular sort of angry fighting spirit. And now, um, many secular people, the word fundamentalist means dangerous uh, militants. Uh, So if I were to be in uh, 1925 America and someone said, are you a fundamentalist? then my answer would be yes, because what they would be asking is, do you believe the the Nicene Creed? Now, if someone says, are you a fundamentalist, I'm going to have to say no, because what they mean is a whole other list of questions. With evangelical, a lot of people in secular media 
They identify that only in political terms. They don't differentiate between people who culturally identify as evangelicals, which would be almost everybody in the old Bible Belt, um, regardless of whether or not they go to church. And because we have several evangelical leaders that I believe have actually compromised and and in many cases contradicted uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I have to just explain more uh, what I mean when I say I'm an evangelical Christian these days. Mm -hmm. And you kind of hint at uh, my next question where I think a lot of leaders and pastors are, as, as they engage with the political season right now, are thinking about, should I endorse a particular candidate? You know, if I find somebody that I'm ready to vote for, should I go ahead and endorse? Do you think it's ever a good idea for pastors and, and church leaders to to endorse a candidate? Well, I don't think, first of all, that it ought to be against the law for a, a uh, pastor to endorse a candidate. And I cannot give an ironclad rule because I think there are particular moments in American history, for instance, where a pastor endorsing a particular candidate because of the unique circumstances uh, can be warranted. So I think, for instance, of um, John Leland, uh, the uh, the uh, revolutionary era Baptist uh, preacher and founding era Baptist preacher who for the sake of religious liberty and the First Amendment, endorsed Thomas Jefferson and advocated on behalf of Thomas Jefferson. I'm not saying he's wrong in in having done that. What I am saying is, generally speaking, uh, a pastor endorsing a particular candidate is a terrible idea. And uh, the reason that I think that's a terrible idea is because it can breed a kind of cynicism and it can create a kind of confusion about the the sort of authority that the pastor has as a, a shepherd of the church. I think the church is much more equipped, as evangelical leader Carl Henry uh, said in The Last Generation, to say no to certain disqualified options than a church is to say yes to one particular candidate or uh or a party platform or, or what have you. And so I think that the, the advance of the gospel means you don't want to create the confusion where people wonder, is your priority really about this particular candidate or this particular party or so forth? So form and shape consciences, but don't endorse candidates. And I would also say that also applies to the kind of wink, wink, nod, nod endorsement within the context of the church that we sometimes see where people will, for instance, uh, have a candidate who just happens to be running for circuit clerk uh, to come and give his testimony uh, in, in the church. And we announce, you know, let's pray for Brother Ronnie here who's, who's running for circuit clerk, and he's a godly uh, Christian man. And people know, well, you're sending us a signal that he's the guy we ought to vote for. I think that that, that detracts from the authority that we've been given uh, in terms of the proclamation of the gospel. That's great. Dr. Moore, The um, I loved your book, Onward. Um, and, you. and your book, really, you're tackling how do we engage culture without losing the gospel. And I think that when you look across, you know, the kind of the spectrum, you see both examples. You see people that have kind of, if for the sake of winning the culture, have kind of moved away from the gospel. And then there's also examples of people that are so gospel-centered 
but they don't care at all how they're reaching the culture. Like it's like they don't care if they reach the culture. They just want to be faithful to the gospel. Yeah. Can you talk about how, I know this is a, a kind of a big question, but how can pastors kind of know if they're in the middle where they're balancing those two things? Well, I think one of the ways that you know that is on the basis of the kind of criticism that you get. And so um, you're not going to be exempt from criticism in ministry. Uh, You're just not. The goal ought to be to be getting that criticism in stereo. And so, uh, for instance, if you're balancing uh, law and gospel in the way that the Scripture does, then you ought to be hearing from some people that you're too legalistic and from other people that you're too grace-oriented. And I think that the same thing is true when you're equipping people to engage the culture. You you, you ought to be hearing from some people, well, you're just not political enough, uh, and and from other people you're interfering in, in issues that are too political. And you're, you're seeing, am I getting that sort of criticism across the spectrum as I'm trying to lead people to follow Christ in a, in a way that's holistic in our, in our culture? And then also make sure that you are not simply addressing the kinds of issues that you would care about even if Jesus were still dead but that your commitment to the gospel is causing you to care about issues that may not affect you personally at all. And so you're, you're instead constantly asking, how do these issues in our culture right now affect my brothers and sisters in Christ who may be in different, very different situations, and how do I help them to bear their burdens? And so, for instance, when it comes to issues of, uh, of race, we shouldn't—African-American evangelical Christians shouldn't have to bear the burden of calling uh, the rest of the church to care about racial justice. White evangelicals ought to be looking at ways that our African-American brothers and sisters are being harmed, and we should be the ones— who are standing up and speaking to uh, those sorts of issues. Uh, Latino evangelicals shouldn't have to bear the exclusive burden of standing up and talking about care for immigrant communities. Uh, Other uh, African-American and white evangelicals ought to be concerned about those things, even if those issues don't affect us personally uh, at all. It does affect us because it affects our our broader family within the household of, of God. Families who have children with disabilities shouldn't have to bear the exclusive burden of speaking up for people with disabilities. Families that, that don't have that experience ought to be looking and saying, how are, are these situations affecting our brothers and sisters in Christ? And so asking yourself, do the things that weigh on my conscience, are they all just things that affect me personally or not? I think that's a good rule of thumb to go by. That is really good. I think, you know, just that principle of if one part of the body hurts, we all hurt. Yeah. Um, and and that's so good. Well, Dr. Moore, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us today. Thank you for your leadership on a lot of these issues. I know so many pastors are looking to you and, and you know, hanging on the things that you're writing. And so thank you for your ministry and, uh, and just keep up the great work. Well, thanks so much. Thanks for having me on today. 
Thanks to Dr. Moore for joining us this week as our special guest on the Church Leaders Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, or review us in iTunes and consider sending this episode to someone you know who might benefit from listening to it. Also make sure to download the show notes for this episode at churchleaders.com forward slash podcast. In the show notes, we always put resources that are mentioned in the show and links to some of our guest top content on churchleaders.com. As always, if you have ideas for how we can improve this podcast or guests that you'd love to hear us talk to, you can email me directly at podcast at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next week. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website, churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.